Small buy-in tournaments like the ones we discussed in the last episode are one thing, but the $10,000 main event of the World Series of Poker is a major item on just about every serious live tournament player's calendar. Welcome to the season finale of Third Man Walking. I'm back from Las Vegas now, and I'll spare you the suspense. I fired 16 bullets in tournaments over the course of three weeks, and I have only two small caches to show for it. Tournaments are about dreams. They're about making a small investment, playing for a couple days, and getting back 50 or 500 times more than you put in. The price of those dreams is that thousands of players will go to Vegas each summer, and the overwhelming majority of them will lose. In early June, the longtime pro David Baker ran a Twitter poll that asked readers how they had been running in the series. 19% said they had run great, while 36% said average, and a full 45% said they were running awful. The poll surely reflects a degree of entitlement and delusion among its respondents. We all feel like we'd be more successful if the cards weren't so unfair. But there's something else going on as well. In tournaments, most players actually will have bad luck, at least in the short term. About 1 in 8 players will cash any given tournament. And in events with thousands of entrants, only one entry in, say, every 500 will win a really hefty, satisfying amount. In tournaments, everyone begins with the same starting stack, and blinds gradually increase, leading to all-in pots that result in eliminations. There are any number of circumstances that can lead to these all-in confrontations. You have kings, your opponent has aces. You have a made hand, your opponent has a draw. You bluff, and your opponent calls. But let's imagine that every all-in in a given tournament is a flip, which means a confrontation between two hands that are similar in equity. You have pocket queens, your opponent has ace-king, you have ace-jack, your opponent has pocket sevens, and so on. Let's say that, early in a tournament, you win a flip and bust a player. That player heads for the exit, feeling unlucky. After all, he had a 50% chance of doubling his stack, and now he has nothing. An hour later, you win another flip, and that opponent feels unlucky on the way out the door, even though she won a flip off a different player to get as far as she did. Then, hours later, you're near the bubble, the point in the tournament where everyone starts making money, and you take another flip. But this time you lose. What terrible luck. You got so close, and you had a 50% chance of making the money and running up a really big stack. But you lost the flip, and now you're out. Your money and the 10 hours you spent in the tournament are gone. This is a simplification of the way tournament eliminations actually work. But there's a ton of luck involved. And in a tournament where 7 out of 8 players fail to cash, a lot of them are, with some justification, going to feel like they got the short end of the stick. It's all in how you look at it, but in a way, a large percentage of any tournament field really does get unlucky. I didn't get much above the starting stack in most of the tournaments I played. Two days after the last tournament buy-in I mentioned in the last episode, I notched a very small cache in the Colossus at the Rio. I then busted three times in a small tournament before firing the mini-main, a smaller prelude to the real main event. I lost almost all my chips early on. The blinds were 100 and 300, and there were three limpers. I had pocket threes in the small blind and called for 300, and the big blind checked. 
So there was 1800 in the pot heading to the flop, which came queen, 10, 3, rainbow, giving me bottom set. I checked. Often I lead out with very strong hands when my opponents aren't really paying attention. Four and five way flops occur most frequently at tables where my opponents are playing poorly, so I don't have to worry much about them noticing what I'm doing and I can just focus on building the pot. In this case though, I thought the limpers had so many hands that hit this board that I could play this hand as a check raise. Sure enough, the first limper bet 1200. The second limper folded, and the third limper called. I raised to 5100. The better called, and the other player folded. I had seen the better raise preflop with strong starting hands, so I mostly ruled out the only hands that could beat me, pocket queens and pocket tens. I of course noted the possibility of straight draws like King Jack on this board, but in the back of my head I mostly dismissed Jack-9 as a possibility, since I didn't think my opponent would bet into four people with a straight draw that would only make the nuts on an eight. The turn was a king, creating a board of queen, ten, three, king, and I thought, that's a good card. Ace-jack makes a straight, but it seems unlikely my opponent would have bet into four people on the flop with just a gut shot. And if my opponent has king-queen, king-jack, or king-ten, that king improved his hand, and he has no choice but to call a large bet. So I bet big, trying to set up an all-in on the river. I fired 12,000 into a pot of 13,200. But as the chips were leaving my hand, I thought, wait, he actually could have jack-9, which now beats me. I hadn't thought about it on the turn to that point, because I'd subconsciously dismissed it on the flop. But really, there was no reason he couldn't have jack-9. Him firing into four opponents with it on the flop still seemed unlikely, but definitely not impossible. If I'd thought about jack-9, I still would have bet the turn, but I would have bet smaller, and I probably wouldn't have tried to set up an all-in on the river. He called. The river was a five, and suddenly, because I'd brain-farted the turn, I wasn't sure what to do. I went ahead and went all in for his last 39,000, figuring I could still get called by a hand like King-Queen. He called, with Jack-9, and I was left with a stack of about 12,000. Now, it's possible every play I made in that hand could be justified based on the table, which was crazy. For example, here was my last hand. There was a limp in early position. The hijack seat made a small raise and the button called. I had pocket jacks in the small blind and went all in for 15 big blinds. The limper called, the razor called, and the button accidentally put in the wrong chips to raise yet again. Everyone called. The board ran out 8-3-deuce-queen-8, and they all checked it down. The limper showed ace-king, the razor showed 10-7 of diamonds, and the button showed king-queen. So maybe my somewhat wild play with a set of threes was fine, or even good. But I know I broke from what I would normally do, because after 10 days of tournaments, my mind wasn't right. I immediately went back to my Airbnb, and this was around 2 in the afternoon, and I texted the Pocket Threes hand to my investors and I said, look, I'm scheduled to fire the main event in a couple days, and if I'm going to be making mistakes like this, maybe I shouldn't play, maybe I should just refund your money and go home. Several of them wrote back and said, basically, you're going to double or nearly double the guy with Jack-9 regardless. Take the day off, it's fine, we still want you to play the main. One of them texted me individually and said I was thinking like a fish, that making one mistake didn't make me unworthy of playing the main, and that in the future I should wait a couple hours before impulsively telling my backers I was having a crisis of confidence and inviting them to rethink their investment. He was right, of course. I took the rest of the day off, and by the late afternoon I felt better. 
In retrospect, I'm glad I had that time. I didn't play many cash games while I was in Vegas. They're better in my hometown, and I wanted to spend those few weeks exclusively focusing on tournaments. So I spent my time off studying and meeting friends and exercising. Earlier, I mentioned that in any tournament, most entrants will feel unlucky. But if I was going to brick this many tournaments in my first 10 days or so in Vegas, busting early as many times as I did was the way to do it. I had a lot of free time. So, I did register for the main event, and when it came time to play, I felt good. I'd heard scouting reports from friends about their starting tables in past years, so I had a sense of what to expect. But there's really no way to know what playing the main event will feel like until you're there. There's excitement in the air, and the players exude seriousness, earnestness. Whatever goofy mistakes people might make in a typical tournament, they do not plan on making those mistakes in the main event. There wasn't anyone I knew of at my day one table. There were a few players who were quite good, including one who ended up having some of the same backers I did. But overall, I felt comfortable and I gradually chipped up through the first level. But for the rest of the day, I didn't get much to work with. First, I played a fairly large pot with pocket queens on a board of 10, 5, deuce, 9, then had to fold the river when a king hit and completed a front door flush draw. There was a 3-bet pot where I had red kings and had to take it slow when the flop came queen, 9, 8, all spades, and another where I raised ace-8 of clubs from the hijack, got called by an unpredictable player in the big blind, flopped the nut flush draw, and whiffed. None of these hands were big deals, but my best opportunities to chip up never materialized. I bagged around the starting stack of 60,000 for day 2. Day 2 was about the same. In the second level, with blinds of 500 and 1,000, I raced to 2,200 with a 7 of hearts from middle position and got 3 callers. The flop came 10, 8, 4 with 2 hearts. It checked to me, and I bet 3,500 into a pot of 10,300. A player behind me called, and a very tight player in the cutoff raised to 13,500. I called and had to fold to a bet of 35,000 on a blank turn. I finally won a significant hand in the next level, in which blinds were 600 and 1200. A Bulgarian pro who was raising about 80% of hands raised to 2600 on the button, and I called in the big blind with king 10 offsuit. The flop came queen, 10, 3, rainbow, giving me middle pair. I checked and he bet 2000. I called. The turn was an 8, creating a backdoor diamond draw for a board of queen, 10, 3, 8 with 2 diamonds. I checked again, still just with middle pair, and he bet 7,500. Against many players I'd fold, but this guy was playing wildly, so I called, planning to call on blank river cards. The river was an offsuit king, so I made two pair. I checked, he bet 24,000, and I made the easy call and beat 9-6 of spades. For the rest of the day, not much happened. Looking back at my notes, I had that one hand where I made two pair, and another where I made the nut flush in a small pot early in the day. Aside from that, I didn't have much value to work with. I bagged 64,000 heading to day three. My day three table was much tougher than either of the previous days. There were several good pros, including a world-class player who's a regular on the high roller circuit. But my competition was probably less important than my cards. 
My stack had dwindled to 42,000 in the 1200-2400 level when I raced to 5,000 with Ace-8 of Diamonds in the hijack. The world-class player called on the button. The flop came 10-9-7, giving me a straight draw. That generally should be a better flop for my opponent than for me, so I checked, and he checked behind. The turn was a 9, and I checked again. He bet 6,000, and I went all in. He folded. It was a small pot, but it was a thrill to pull off an all-in bluff against one of the best players in the world. I finally picked up a few chips in the next level. A recreational player raised to 6,500 in the low jack, and I just called next to act with pocket aces, which I'd been dealt for the first time in three days. The big blind also called. The flop came king-king-queen with two hearts, and it checked around. The turn was an offsuit six. The big blind checked, the raiser bet 7,000, and only I called. The river was an offsuit deuce, and my opponent bet 20,000. I called, and he said I needed an ace, which I doubt was true, and he mucked. From there, I went back to being card dead. I shoved the last of my stack, basically just crumbs, in the following level with ace-queen. I lost to king-jack, busting three hours before the bubble. Looking over my notes, I see a few spots I could debatably have played differently, but not many real opportunities to chip up. I'm always looking for ways to get better, and I frequently wonder how a world-class player like the one at my table on day three would have fared if he'd gotten the same cards and opportunities I got in this tournament. Maybe he would have played more hands, although, looking through my notes, I played lots of hands I don't think a nit would have played. Maybe he would have gambled more in certain situations. As a cash player, it's easy to play tournaments a little too conservatively. In cash games, there's no rush to accumulate chips, and in smaller games with high rake, it can be counterproductive to fight over small pots in ways that are profitable in tournaments. So, I don't know. Maybe I played too tight. I'm sure it looked that way. But I think I mostly just didn't have much luck. This is the last episode of this season of Third Man Walking. I wish the ending was a little more climactic. A final table run would have been great. But most days, poker isn't about glory. It isn't about climactic moments. Remember the James Bond movie Casino Royale? Well, I didn't watch it. But many poker players have had a laugh at the last poker hand of that movie, which you can watch on YouTube. There are four people playing some sort of no-limit hold'em cash freeze-out with a big blind of a million dollars, which is definitely not a thing that exists. We pick up the action on the turn, and the board is Ace of Hearts, Eight of Spades, Six of Spades, Four of Spades. Everyone checks. Some guy on the rail mansplains to a much younger woman that there's $24 million in the pot. The river is the Ace of Spades, for a final board of Ace of Hearts, Eight of Spades, Six of Spades, Four of Spades, Ace of Spades. Bond checks. The next player to act goes all in for six million dollars. The following player calls all in for five million. And the next player after that, who I gather is the villain in the movie, raises to twelve million. The dealer declares that the pot is heads up, which of course it is not. Bond and the villain stare at each other awkwardly, and then Bond goes all in for $40 million, flagrantly splashing the pot, which everyone who's played poker more than once knows not to do. We see that the villain has a 6 offsuit for a full house, and he calls. At this point, someone should turn over his hand. 
but instead there's more staring. Then the first player to go all in shows king-queen of spades for a flush. The second player shows pocket eights for a full house. The villain very slowly turns over his ace-6 for a higher full house, and then Bond finally pulls his cards out from behind his chips and theatrically flips over 7-5 of spades for a straight flush, completing the slow roll of the century. When you've played thousands of hours of poker, strange things happen, and I've seen some crazy showdowns. The craziest was an all-in pot in which I had pocket tens on a board of ten of diamonds, eight of diamonds, eight of spades, nine of diamonds, ten of clubs. My opponent had queen jack of diamonds for a straight flush, defeating my quad tens. But wacky showdowns like the one we see in the Bond movie are rare, and not just because it's clear, even without the entire hand history, that everyone in the hand played it badly. The king-queen and pocket-eights should not put in half their stacks pre-flop and leave chump change behind. The ace-six offsuit probably shouldn't put in six big blinds pre. And putting in six million dollars with seven-five of spades doesn't make sense when two of the players in the hand have so little left behind. Bond had less than a 13% chance of winning the pot pre-flop. Of course, maybe some of that money went in on the flop, but if that's true, someone should have gone all in then, given how wet the board was. These sorts of showdowns are also rare because, well, it's not that often that king-queen of spades, pocket eights, ace-six offsuit, and seven-five suited are all live in a given hand to have a flush, two full houses, and a straight flush. That's ridiculous, and if that's the direction the writers wanted to go, why didn't they just give the ace-six guy pocket aces to make quads? Was that too unrealistic for them? Okay, criticizing a poker hand in a movie for being unrealistic is shooting fish in a barrel. But it's worth thinking through what it means, that most poker hands aren't like this one, and that even most of the wild ones don't end in rapt applause from rich railbirds in tuxes and evening gowns. When a crazy collision of hands does happen, you kind of shake your head and move on. When I ran quads into a straight flush, I think I said oh my god and threw my hands up in exasperation. The table gasped, attracting about two seconds of attention from the table across the room. My opponent and I just kind of laughed, and then we kept playing. Tournaments where you actually can make millions of dollars do create drama, because tournaments are designed to create a few big winners and a much larger group of small losers. In WSOP fields with thousands of entries, well, occasionally you might get your big shot. But you can't expect to win that big very often. Most poker players play most of their hands in the shadows. You're not winning millions of dollars. You're not making straight flushes and winning nine-figure pots against full houses. Instead, you're looking for small edges. Unprofitable starting hands that your opponents play, but that you fold. Flops where you might normally bet one-third of the pot, but where it might be more profitable to bet two-thirds. Opponents you can raise a little more often on the flop because they continuation bet too much. These are the sorts of spots that affect your winnings or losses over time. So I'll return to those small decisions in $100 or $500 pots. I'll quietly put in the hours and hopefully get my bankroll back to where it was before June. Like thousands of other players whose lives didn't change this summer, I'll return to the quiet parts of the poker world. Maybe you, dear listener, are one of those players. Maybe you and I will wind up at the same table, playing 5-10 or 2-5 together in some quiet corner of a dimly lit casino. But if we do, 
it's likely neither of us will know. Thanks to everyone who offered help and advice as I was making this podcast. Thanks especially to Yale Greenfield, with whom I talk poker almost every day. In several of the stories in these episodes that begin with a buddy telling me something, that's him. Thanks to Sam Wilmoth, who read an early draft of the script and had lots of good suggestions. And thanks to Mark Boone, who was responsible for the cockroach idea. Mark became a big booster of third man walking and helped grow its audience by inviting me to discuss it on Live at the Bike. Thanks also to the Shark Tank in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I got my start in live cash games, and to the many friends there who have followed this podcast from the beginning and have sent encouraging emails and texts. Thanks also to my many friends in the Los Angeles poker scene who have done the same. Finally, thanks to Allison Wade, who never tried to stop me from saying the same sentence over and over again at 1am while she was trying to sleep in the next room. The theme music was written by yours truly and performed by Beethoven. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening, and make sure you're subscribed so you'll know when Season 2 will be available. There may be additional ways to follow my poker commentary before that, and if things go as planned, I'll keep you posted via my Twitter account, which is Third Walking. And as always, feel free to give me a shout at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.